First of all, I think we often make the mistake of appointing student leaders and then saying, good luck. That's today's guest, professor and author Matthew Arau, discussing the importance of training and continuously supporting student leaders in our programs. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Dr. Matthew Arau, author of Upbeat and founder of Upbeat Global, is an associate professor of music and chair of the music education department at the Lawrence University Conservatory of Music in Appleton, Wisconsin. In addition, Dr. Arau serves as a Con Selmer education clinician and is also on the faculty of the American Band College of Central Washington University and Vandercook College of Music. Dr. Arau has guest conducted and presented on student leadership, mindfulness, growth mindset, rehearsal techniques, and creating positive cultures in 26 states and on four continents. Find Matthew's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicatinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? I appreciated that we talked about the difference between being upbeat and engaging in toxic positivity. Those are not the same thing. What about you, Steve? Well, I like this idea that being more upbeat, just like anything worth working for, needs to be practiced. Yes. He has a positive message and lots of passion, but there is thoughtful intention behind it all. No shortcuts. Solid stuff. Let's get to this conversation with Matthew Arau. Matthew Arau, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with the basic premise of upbeat. What are the foundations of your approach? And in particular, how might it differ from some other philosophies? I really became really interested in, in leadership as a high school band director. And I always share out of sheer survival. I don't know if any of your listeners can relate to being the new teacher and having the older students be not super happy that there's a yeah, new we teacher. Did, we didn't do it and... this way last year. That kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I had a lot of that and we ended up second semester starting something called the leadership symposium. And it was open to all students in the, in the band. And we just started asking questions about what kind of band do we want to create? You know, what uh, reputation do we want to have? What are the qualities, you know, of a, band member that they were trying to emulate and aspire to be. And so that led to me teaching principles of leadership from folks like Stephen Covey, Seven Habits, uh, John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, John Wooden's Pyramid of Success. And then I started sharing with other music teachers about my leadership program, which again was founded on those three things, but it allowed for a lot of collaboration, a lot of conversation, a lot of empowerment of the students. And as I began teaching leadership more and researching and studying leadership and personal growth, personal development, I developed what I call the four C's of leadership. And those are character, competence, connection, and clarity. And this, I just want to jump in and clarify something real quick here. You're referring to... This would be the ideal qualities of me, the music teacher, leading my students, as well as the qualities that I'm trying to impart onto my students in, in their capacities, either as official or unofficial leaders. And I think that's a great question. 
when I was developing the four C's, I was thinking about leadership in terms of universal, although I was teaching students. As I, I'm sure you believe, Steve, it's really important for the teacher to be a role model and, and model and demonstrate attributes and characters that we think are really important. And what I think is interesting about character is that I, I don't think we're born to have a particular character. I don't think it's like encoded in us that we're going to have this particular character. I think that character, uh, of course, it's modeled to us as in our society and our parenting and, and our parents and family and all that, all those influences. But I do believe that character is something that we can choose. And I also think that it's okay to give yourself grace. Like we're going to mess up sometimes. And so character competence, competence is about skills and abilities. I also think that skills and abilities are something that can be developed. And it's important to have skills and abilities that you can role model as a leader. So particularly in student leadership, for example, if you're a trumpet section leader, it's important to develop your skills of playing the trumpet uh, in order to, to role model. And then the next level is connection because it's important to be able to connect with those that you're leading. So they want to work alongside you and collaborate with you. And then the, the final one is C for clarity, which is about having a clear vision of where you're headed. And that vision can be created with your team. Um, it can also uh, be, you know, uh, communicated clearly, uh, and it inspires others to to come along on the journey. After developing the four C's of leadership, uh, I came upon the idea of upbeat, and it was connected to a clinic I gave in Utah to the Utah Bandmasters. And the original title of the clinic was Creating a Positive Culture in Band. The, the word upbeat can refer to somebody who's uplifting, energizing, somebody who we spend time with, we, we leave feeling a little bit better. It could also be somebody that we find uh, is compassionate and we can maybe lean our shoulder on when, when we need support. It, I take that analogy metaphor further to the idea that our thoughts are the upbeats to our actions and that our attitude is our upbeat uh, to any situation and that ultimately we can choose our attitude and we can choose our response and, and we can choose our upbeat. I just want to, I want to go back for a second to the idea of, of choosing the attitude. Um, you talked about choosing the attitude and also choosing the response and I guess when I've been thinking about leadership and, and working with young people, the idea of choosing the response to a stimulus is a huge one. You know, a thing happens and then we get to decide how we respond to that, like how we behave in response to that. And framing that as behavior has always felt sort of empowering, that response. The, but the thing that happens before that, the choosing of the attitude in advance of that, I, I'm not sure that all students and even all adults have enough control um, or enough optimism or enough enough soundness of mental health even to always be able to choose that attitude. I, I think I've been talking to some pediatricians about this over the last year uh, and a child uh, psychologist and counselor the other day even about the idea that a lot of students suffer from some depression some anxiety. I read a statistic the other day that one in three students has thought about taking their own life in the last year. I'm not trying to be a downer or anything like that, but I just remember one of the best student leaders I ever had was clinically depressed and would cut herself. 
Um, but when it came to band, she was like an amazing student leader. And I don't think she chose a positive attitude to do that. I think that she like really, really cared and understood how to lead. So I, I know that's a lot. And I know that's a bit of a downer. But can you expand a little bit on the, the concept or, or your response to the idea that not everybody can really choose a positive attitude if they if they want to, even if they want to? Absolutely. And it's such a it's a complex, nuanced um, concept and idea for sure. Uh, and th there's many layers to it. And uh, so in terms of choosing our response, it's it's not something that you can just will yourself into doing like I'm going to choose my response. Uh, all of these ideas uh, do take concerted practice. And to me, it, it uh, we could talk about uh, mindfulness, for example, or even the practice of meditation. And so, for example, uh, if one were to sit down and, and meditate, let's say for five minutes, and you wanted to just focus on your inhale and exhale and focus on your breath and keep that your focus, but then you notice that your thoughts are entering your mind and you are unable to continue to focus on your breath, right? And then you try to divert your, you try to bring your attention back to your breathing. And you might along the way say like, I'm not good at meditation. <laughs> I can't <laughs> stop my thoughts. And I would share, that's why meditation is a practice. We never master it, but we, we aspire for it. And then we can learn skills to help us through that. So We've learned that managing the breath in stressful situations can be a strategy to help folks in moments of crisis and, and stress. And an example would be uh, somebody, uh, you know, snaps at, snaps at us and says something that is very upsetting and our natural knee-jerk reaction would be to kind of come back at, like come back at them with this similar kind of energy. And that's natural and normal. But in order to uh, kind of break that habit, we need to become aware of that. And then in that moment, find the intention to take a deep breath and calm down to de-escalate the situation. As an example, this is a skill that we can work on with a student leader and adults. Now, folks that are uh, clinically depressed uh, or maybe not even clinically depressed, and we say like, hey, let's try to be positive about this situation. That's probably not going to get a very good response. Because I often right. say, you know, if you're, if you're not, if you're not, uh, if you're upset or you're angry and somebody were to say, stop being angry, that's probably about the worst thing you could possibly do. In fact, <laughs> I think that's a real example of what we call, um, it's become popular in social media to talk about uh, toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. And toxic positivity is, is when you're completely, um, uh, it's like you're tone deaf about how other people are feeling. And yeah. so I think a really important aspect is to honor and be compassionate. So mindfulness and compassion are almost synonymous with each other, but we often think about compassion in terms of being compassionate towards, compassionate towards others, but it, compassion really needs to begin with compassion towards ourselves. And, and if we are upset or, or, depressed um we want to give that compassion to ourselves and give ourselves grace and and not beat ourselves up for that and so while the word upbeat sounds like it's just about you know 
striving to be happy all the time. It's also about being real and authentic and genuine and compassionate. And I think that's where, you know, the mindfulness aspect comes. Uh, in previous episodes, we have talked a little bit about the harm of toxic positivity. And, and, and there's been such a backlash behind some of the toxic positivity that, that frankly, uh, school administrators have used to try to like help teachers cope. And it's been a little bit misguided. We've talked about that in this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. so that then anytime anybody hears something like, choose a positive attitude, stay upbeat, you know, using the, the, the term in that, that context, then immediately someone can think, oh, it's that toxic positivity again. Um, but when you combine that mindfulness and that compassion and the need to practice, um, it, that's, that's great. Thanks for clarifying that. It's really, it's great. One idea I'll just share with folks is the role that gratitude can play mm -hmm. in how we feel and what we think about when I talk about like how we can choose our thoughts. What I'll, what I'll share, and this comes from the research of Martin Seligman and positive psychology, is that if we can intentionally either write down something we're grateful for or, or really focus on what we're grateful for and, and to start to develop a habit of doing this daily. And the studies that have been done have been, like, write down three things you're grateful for maybe before you go to bed and you do that you know, 21 days in a row. And it begins to rewire the brain to start looking for things that we're grateful for. I think one thing that as Alan and I enter into, I think we're into the 30s now for episodes of, of this podcast. And it originally started with this idea that we wanted to have really practical things that you could apply right away after the next day after listening. And I think that's been good. But one thing that I'm sort of discovering as we go along the way is that it's really nice to clarify for people when something can and should be instantaneous. And also when we're talking about things that are maybe going to be a little bit more difficult. And I think the, the conversation you and Alan are having is great where if I'm a student, I understand, oh, what you're asking me to do might be easy for this person next to me for certain reasons, but for different reasons, it's really challenging for me. And I think, I don't know, that's just sort of an aha moment I've been having as I learn more about these things and that we really need to clarify for people that, yep, this might fix your trumpet tone quality right away, or this might fix some, some visual things or phasing in your marching band right away. But this other thing, is is not and it might take a while so that way when i go and try it i don't feel bad about myself i'm curious if you have do you address this in your workshops with the students and you say we're all different for some of you you're going to be able to adopt this right away and for others of you you're not and that's okay don't beat yourself up here's what i suggest do you, are you just really open about that you know i really talk about this idea of practice a lot. And, um, you know, since I talk about uh, skill acquisition and, you know, uh, myelination of the brain and neuroplasticity and, you know, how we learn and how we grow and develop, um, I, I try to, you know, paint a realistic picture of, of what's possible, but also try to paint a vision um, for something to aspire for. And, 
I, I, I touch on, I think what I call like real, I, I say, is it okay if we get real? And I talk with students, I, I, and here's a series of questions I'll, I'll go ahead and ask. I think it's interesting to think of. I'll say, how many of you think it's important to treat others with kindness? And almost everybody raises their hands. Then I say, how many of you think it's important to treat others with compassion? And almost everybody raises their hands. And then I say, even though it can be very difficult, how many of you feel it's important to find a place in your heart to forgive others? And then most people raise their hand. And then I'll say, we're going to go a little deeper if that's okay. Raise your hand if, even though you think it's important to treat others with kindness, you often don't treat yourself with kindness. And almost every hand goes up. Even though you think it's important to treat others with compassion, how many of you don't always treat yourself with compassion? Almost every hand goes up. Even though you think it's important to forgive others, how many of you find sometimes the last person you can forgive is you? And almost every hand goes up. And when that happens, that leads to a really important conversation, I think, which is, how would you treat yourself if you were your best friend? How would you treat yourself if you were a loved one? And it really leads to kind of that deep conversation about self-talk, which I'll share, I think is a really important topic, which sadly is not, it's rarely discussed in school. And self, and who do we talk to the most in our life? Ourself. Mm -hmm. But we spend school talking about writing to others, speaking, public speaking to others. But we don't address what I think is one of the most important things in life, which is how we treat ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. And so through that conversation, the students come to this awareness that they're not alone. That they're not alone. And when they look around the room and they see all these other students, oftentimes other student leaders, and they say, oh my gosh, even that person, they seem so confident, but they're also really hard on themselves. And so we just get, have this real conversation. I, I, and I think, you know, the idea that you can change your self-talk overnight <laughs> is not uh, realistic. But what I try to do is share strategies of how you can catch yourself and replace words, you know, and, and change the language that you speak to yourself. Because the way we treat ourselves is often reflected in how we treat others. <laughs> I, I just want to go back to the breathing for just a second. I think one of the most unique things that you do in your workshops is breathe with students. Uh, can you share your your one favorite breathing exercise that you that you think is really helpful uh, for good mindfulness and self-awareness? So one day in my high school band, I decided to bring an idea from mindful breathing or strategy of mindful breathing into my band class. At the beginning of class, I could tell students, you know, we're... Uh, it was kind of rowdy and, and there's a lot of energy in the room and you could kind of sense the, a little bit of stress. And so I said, just get comfortable and just breathe in our nose for four counts and out our nose for four counts. So it just went. And we did that about three times. And then I looked at the band after I opened my eyes because I gently closed my eyes and I saw Janelle, who played tenor saxophone, she was in the third row. And I just looked at her and her her whole body was completely relaxed in the most relaxed position you can imagine. Her one of her shoulders was lower than the other. And she tilted her head back and she just looked up at me and she said, can we do this every day? 
And I realized that it wasn't just me that needed that stress release, that our students needed it as well. Let's move forward to some like maybe quick, less philosophical, maybe a little bit more uh, practical ideas um, about just organization and logistics when it comes to student leadership. Um, sometimes I get asked how many, how many students should be leaders? My answer has always been between 10 and 25% of the ensemble, um, smaller percentage if it's a large group, larger percentage if it's a smaller group. Um, but that is so anecdotal. I got no research data behind that answer. What's your answer to that? Is there an ideal number or percentage of an ensemble that should act in an official leadership capacity? Well, it's a great question. It also, uh, you know, there's the assumption that the students should have leadership titles. And what's neat, Alan, is that I've uh, also worked with programs that didn't have official student leadership titles, where there is this idea that every student um, supports one another, encourages one another. They would rotate. They have they rotate the parts, and they encourage everybody to kind of rise up and and be lifters and encouragers and supporters. So I do want to share that there are alternative models that are also successful. I wrote an article for SBNO magazine. Uh, it was kind of a two parter, July. In August um, uh, this this year, and uh, it was uh, the premise was inclusive student leadership, and it, it shared that yes, we can have programs that have titled uh, leaders, but we should also uh, share and teach all of the the principles of leadership that we teach to our leaders, our, our titled leaders, to everyone. And so I do want to share that. I think that one thing I've been noticing is that sometimes I feel we give the special training to the leaders and so much of what you and I do, Alan, is valuable for everyone, isn't it? 100%. Right? Mm-hmm. But I could go with those uh, numbers that you said, you know, that that 15, uh, 20%, depending on the on the number of students in, in the group. Uh, when, with my marching band at Loveland, it was probably pretty similar to that, you know, drum majors, section leaders, brass, woodwind sergeants, captains, and that kind of thing. That's what I was going to ask, if it depends not only on the size, but maybe the type of group. Did you have a, a leadership structure in your jazz band or concert band? Yeah, so great question. And so with the with the jazz ensemble, it was you know just sec- the one section leader per section, so, and then uh, same thing with the with the concert program, it was it was primarily section leaders per section. So there there may have been less leaders in the concert program than in the marching program. What other kinds of roles and responsibilities do you think that directors could do more with student leaders in band, choir, and orchestra? Well, first of all, I think we often make the mistake of appointing student leaders and then saying, good luck yep. without proper training. And so uh, that's one thing I would just share is that we need to be uh, supportive and give skills. And, and if our students are going to be expected to teach, we can't just wait to hear about a problem happening I mean, we have degrees in education, our students don't. And oftentimes that can lead to a problem in student leadership where somebody, you know, abuses power or there's just challenges. But if they haven't been given the proper training, I would say, well, you got to look in the mirror. It's probably our fault that that mistake happened. What What is it that uh, you see a director do or not do that leads to student leaders, you know, not being servants of others, but instead being bossy? Um, and doing it the the wrong way. 
I hope I don't offend anyone uh, listening here, but oftentimes the student leaders become a mirror of us, a reflection of us. And because I have the opportunity to work with so many teachers, you know, through my online courses that I teach through Vandercook College of Music and, and other trainings, what teachers will share with me is that oftentimes when student leadership goes awry, they recognize that it's how they were role modeling. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And, and so if a teacher, they're like, gosh, I was bringing my bad mood and I was snapping at people and I was this and that. And then all of a sudden, and then my student teachers were really negative and I realized it was me. And I think that's awesome that they realized that it was primarily them. That's the hard thing about being a teacher. And I, and I'm not innocent on this. Like I've been there too. Like we, we start to see all the good and the bad and the wrinkles and the cracks and all in ourselves, in our students, the longer we're in a program. So that's one of the things is that we might think like, oh, the student leaders are just acting that way. I have no idea why they're acting that way. We need to pause and say, what am I doing or not doing that's leading them to act that way? Like, am I treating students in a certain way? And they're just reflecting that. So that's one thing. The second thing is we just let our student leaders in a way run wild (laughs) without uh, regular check-ins. And that's really important. I've also seen student leaders, in a way, start to abuse their power and uh, kind of create a student leader clique. And that's that's a real challenge when the student leaders make themselves separate from the rest of the students. They need to realize that they are there to, to lift, support, encourage, create a sense of inclusion and belonging and welcoming for the other students, not to uh, just, you know abuse their authority and power, which is something I've seen has led to cultural issues. Well, it has been uh, great fun for me to listen to two leadership experts go back and forth on sharing ideas. And I have learned a lot today. I know our listeners have as well. So thank you, Matthew, for joining us. Could we close down with the lightning round on some lighter topics? Sounds exciting. (laughs) All right. Favorite dining establishment in the Green Bay or Fox Cities area? Ooh, so many choices. My wife and I love Canova's Italian Pizzeria in Nina. That's kind of our go-to. It's amazing. What is a musical artist or piece of music you wish more people knew about? A piece I did recently that I just has so many levels uh, of meaning and, and cultural background is a piece called Peace Dancer by Australian composer Jody Blackshaw. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? Besides your own, of course. Well, <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know what? I, I, I'm going to share. Uh, uh, we were talking about breathing a lot today. And so I'm going to share this book called Breath by James Nestor, N-E-S-T-O-R, that came out, which will transform. It can literally transform the way you breathe uh, like during the day. And uh, so really awesome. And I'm going to sneak in a second book that uh, is transformative for me. It's called Permission to Feel. Mark Brackett, B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T, unlocking the power of emotions to help our kids, ourselves, and our society thrive. And I think breath, I think, Alan, is that our first uh, double recommendation? I think Michael Linson, that was his book recommendation as well. Yeah, I I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, Favorite film or TV series you've been enjoying? Ooh. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll just on a sidebar, uh, my, my wife and I are big Rocky fans, <laughs> but uh, I also uh, really enjoy the the Lord of the Rings 
in the Hobbit series. So yeah, Peter Jackson, of course, uh, Tolkien, just phenomenal. And finally, if you weren't a teacher, try to imagine it. What career do you think you might have had? Geez, that, that's a challenge. Um, let's see. It'd, I'd probably be a rock star. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of people who do consider you a rock star. Dr. Matthew Oral, thank you so much. It's been great to have you on the show. All right. Thank you, guys. It's great. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.